You're listening to the Arts in Isolation podcast, brought to you by Asia House. Hello, this is Juan de Lara, Cultural Manager at Asia House, and I'm very glad to be back with our second season of Arts in Isolation. Our partners, the Baraka Trust and us, along with our supporters, the Altair Trust and the Rohan Trust for Culture, are very pleased to be back after the summer break and ready to bring you some amazing quality content that explores, as usual, the aspects of cultures that comprise the Islamic world. I'm very happy to have with me today for our first episode, Salma Tukan, who is currently the Deputy Director of the Delfina Foundation in London, where she helps strengthening institutional tides and cultural contents for the Foundation and ensuring its growth. Salma brings to us today also her expertise over years working for organizations like Art Dubai. She has also been the Artistic Director of Contemparabia, and I think one of Salma's most relevant achievements was her role as contemporary Middle East curator at the Victoria and Albert Museum in London, where she was responsible for the Middle Eastern art and design programming of the museum. She also worked on the Jamil Price exhibition and co-founded the Culture in Crisis stream. Salma, it's lovely having you here with us today, and I think it is important for our audience to understand your background and why this interest in the Levant region and the Arab world. Thanks so much, Juan, for having me. Um, I've really enjoyed the podcast series during the lockdown, so I have to thank you and your colleagues and the other organizations involved who are also dear to my heart. In terms of my background, I'm a Palestinian uh, British curator and cultural strategist. Um, currently, my, my role is deputy director of the Delfina Foundation. But I grew up partly in Kuwait. My parents are both Palestinian, and we left uh, to move to London during the Gulf War. Uh, slightly earlier than we anticipated. I think my love for culture really came from my parents, who now currently, for the last few years, have been living in Beirut and have made their second home, uh, or primary home, actually, in Beirut. Um, so this kind of love and appetite for culture has really come from them and is actually initially it directed me to study that at university. I think my interest in the region really stemmed from, you know, living living far away from the region, in fact, Um, having moved over from Kuwait when we were very young, I think it was partly really trying to understand where I came from and where my roots were. Uh, the first time I visited Palestine with my family um, and my grandparents, who still had a, a strong connection to the country, was when I was around um, 12 years old. And it had a big marking on me. So I definitely feel as if the, the decision to really pursue and try and, um, you know, study the region really came from trying to understand maybe myself and my ancestry and, and come closer to it. So in relation to your interest in Arab contemporary art, how do you think was the transition from the Victorian Albert Museum, which is a large institution with thousands of workers and staff members, to Delfina Foundation, an organization which fosters new talent and artists in residence? Yeah, in fact, the transition was very, um, was a positive one and very natural, um, as actually both institutions I've known since I was very young. Um, well, in the case of the VNA, in fact, it was my childhood museum. So there was something that was very familiar and special and dear to my heart. Um, and with Delfina Foundation, it was a space that I that I would keep visiting after I graduated from university. So I think there was a familiarity um, 
with both organizations. But I was lucky with the VNA in that the position was um, an inaugural role. So there hadn't existed a contemporary Middle Eastern role within the museum. And I think for that reason, it was a very special challenge in that I joined a department where the rest of my colleagues who were wonderful all specialized in Islamic art. So I think trying to reconcile my space within this encyclopedic museum that, you know, specialized in decorative arts, crafts, design, performing arts, um, and trying to create a space within that for contemporary Arab content um, was interesting. I'm not sure how many people know, but the Asia department uh, at the VNA, of which Middle East is a subsection, is, the, is, is divided by it's like fashion, furniture, textile. I think my, my goal there was really to try and uh, create a place for the region and integrate it within the collection, displays, commissioning opportunities, public program, and general thinking rather than ghettoizing it on the basis of nationality and race. And that was really coming from for many reasons, including um, the feeling that many practitioners had to be seen on par and just as a global you know, designer or artist. So over the eight years that I was there, I, I tried to create this profile for Arab contemporary content at the museum through relationships. Um, so I was able to work very closely with artists, designers and architects across the region and to create you know, opportunities within that through residencies, new commissions, displays, and also to, to start the basis of a collection for the institution and to create opportunities to show that material as well and, and create space for it. So perhaps in order to better understand the region, the cultural sector of the region, um, you could list a couple of examples from initiatives that you work on at the VNA that illustrates the impact that projects had in the region. I think it's irrespective. I think the the VNA is a is a huge institution that has um, that carries a lot of presence. Um, so I think the opportunities that were created within that have had a big effect on some of the artists and designers that that we were able to work with. Um, one particular project that comes to mind was uh, with a Palestinian uh, duo who are brothers, in fact, Elias and Yusuf Anastas from Bethlehem, who are architects and designers. Um, and the work that we produced together was called While We Wait, and it was looking at the cultural claim of nature in Palestine through many different layers. Uh, I think the beauty of the project really was was going beyond the region and really thinking about the idea of festivals. Um, this was a commission for the London Design Festival, where a lot of work, a year's work actually, goes into what is essentially one week festival. Um, so we tried to create um, a provocation whereby the object in fact makes its way back to the land that inspired it. So with While We Wait, um, the commission, which resulted in a combination of an architectural intervention, as well as a sound piece, um, a commissioned, a beautiful commissioned essay by Karim Katan, um, then ended up uh, traveling to Dubai, where you know many communities of Palestinians are also based, but can't, in fact, many of them can't actually return to Palestine, and finally ended up being sited in the heart of the Kremzin Valley, um, a beautiful green space uh, that has been um, divided due to the separation wall. So while we wait as an intervention in the end, ended up being an offering to nature itself, to the community and to the landscape. So the projects that we tried to do was, was really thinking, rethinking the role of an institution, creating opportunities, but 
equally, I would say, I think uh, the effects um, wasn't just on artists and designers from the region, but was also a learning curve for the institution itself. So we're discussing a lot about the cultural scene of the Middle East and the Levant in particular, but I think it could be really useful for our audience to get a general overview of the structures of cultural non-for-profits of the region. Yes, I'm, I'm going to talk maybe more about the Levant, which is the, um, the region that I know best. Um, of course, the Gulf and North Africa work slightly differently and each country has its own dynamics. Um, but I would say for the most part, government support in countries like Lebanon and Palestine and Syria have been slightly negligible. So the private sector as a result is, is lent on to a large degree. Um, and by the private sector, I, I, I'm also talking about the, the impetus of um, artists and curators themselves. So you have spaces like Ashkel Elwan, which is um, a critical space in Beirut, which was actually started um, post-civil war in Lebanon. Um, and really was through the work of a series of artists and curators who started working in the public space and have now built um, a hugely important institution that not only trains young curators, gives studio space commissions, but, but much more. Um, I, there's also, of course, corporate support. However, um, unlike uh, countries like the US, there's very few tax incentives for people to give um, likewise, there's also been patron schemes, something that's hugely popular in the UK and elsewhere. And there are a few patron schemes in the region, but they tend to be, for the most part, now in, in Turkey. So there's two schemes that are young patron schemes in Turkey, one uh, that an organization, Saha, organized, and another one that Istanbul Modern does. However, there are a few fantastic examples of private sector support. One of them, um, which is a, a, a real bastion of, of um, you know, support, is called the Arab Fund for Arts and Culture, called AFAC. And that's an independent organization which supports practitioners across the whole Arab region um, in the fields of visual arts, performing arts, cinema, literature and music. And that does that through grants, training and mentorship. And what's fantastic about AFAC is that it is entirely transparent. It was set up by a group of cultural enthusiasts and patrons um, who understood really that there was a real gap in support and how far patronage and philanthropy could go. Another organization which does brilliant work is called Mufradat, which is based out of Brussels. And that creates again, opportunities for artists from the Arab world, but it also has some very interesting programming, including something called Consortium Commission, uh, where they have managed to get um, the buy-in from um, very prestigious institutions across the world who collectively select and finance a new, new commissions of Arab artists and end up showing it and touring it in each of those venues. They also have you know, brilliant fellowship programs and also curatorial intensives for budding curators from the Arab world. So I think it's really thinking about longevity. Um, for me, though, one of the most in interesting and inspiring examples, because I, I feel sometimes that we forget how avant-garde the region has been, is an organization that emerged out of Beirut in, um, in 67, and it was called Dar el-Fan. It was founded by uh, a Lebanese, a brilliant Lebanese woman called Janine Rubez. This space was, uh, was really remarkable. Um, and it was set up actually at that point in time as a limited shareholding company. 
I think with a capital worth of about you know, 50,000 Lebanese pounds, all divided up um, over a thousand shares. So you had writers, poets, professors, actors, philosophers who could buy shares. But what was interesting is that no one person could buy more than 10 shares because they were really keen to make sure that, that no one had undue influence. Um, so this, I think, idea, this business sort of concept of, of limiting influence, I think, and, and having, you know, stakeholders, you know, had come in, in in the late 60s. But I mean, this space held debates on and exhibitions and poetry competitions and was tackling topics like women's rights in Islam, the relationship between creativity and imitation, gender. It was really ahead of its time. And at that moment in time was also thinking very crucially about archiving and the importance of documentation. So every talk that was held there was published. Unfortunately, the space was closed in 1975 with the outbreak of the civil war in Lebanon. But I think what's important about this is that really the space was way ahead of its time globally and um, you know is inspiring for many uh, organizations that have come in its, in, in its stead. It's excellent to hear of historic initiatives like this one. And I wonder how transformative were these organizations for the sector? I guess they acted as dynamos of social change. And I wonder what did the communities learn from these initiatives? In terms of kind of measuring its impact, I think it had a, a large impact on civil society. Um, as I was mentioning, many of the talks and events that happened there involved a far larger audience. It was members of civil society, individuals and citizens across the city. I think that there, um, as a result, and also certainly, you know, that, that have come and been inspired, but moreover with their own new ideas, there's some brilliant organizations in the city that are carrying out this idea of a much more horizontal way of approaching things. There's one in Beirut that's called Mansion, which was um, initiated by an artist, Hassan Maasri, who, you know, after passing through, as, as most people know, if, if they visited Beirut, there's some incredible buildings um, that have come from the moder modernist era, but even before that. So after, you know, spending a lot of time passing this 1930s abandoned villa in Beirut, he became very curious about this and um, tracked down the owner. Um, the, the building was unoccupied. And so with, with the owner's permission, who was... Um, very supportive of the arts, he let Hassan restore um, the building and regenerate the space to become part of the community. Um, so the space itself actually hosts 10 working studios where residents who all come from different backgrounds, you know, some are dancers, writers, curators, designers, and, um, and many others, they all play a hand in contributing time, labor, and money to the ongoing renovation of it. Um, in, in return for a, a very small rental fee. Um, the idea is really that, you know, they're giving much of their expertise and they all contribute to a shared sense of public programming at Mansion. Um, but the space is, what's interesting is that the space is run without external funding as a result. Um, so you have a model that is very similar to a cooperative and their government governance is a horizontal one where all the stakeholders decide together, you know, which other new um, uh, residents will come in and they they and it's one where you see there is a real um, a real sense of sustainability especially at a time now when uh, public funding and private funding has dried up and also when the question of, of fundraising and keeping spaces afloat has become so um, precarious 
And Salma, I wonder why is there a lack of funding in the region? Um, for several reasons, I think uh, certainly in Beirut, even before the recent, ex you know, very sad explosion, um, there many people because of the, the economic situation have have left the country. Um, they've been relying, or there's been a reliance on fewer patrons and donors um, to several organizations. But I think globally, there's a moment where most organizations are having to think about resilience in a very profound way, no longer just relying on one or two or a handful of individual patrons, but really thinking about what other income generating um, possibilities there could be, as well as the idea of a more horizontal way of operating. Um, and certainly with COVID, organizations around the world have been heavily affected. Every source of income has been hit to some degree. Um, but this is an example mansion, and there are many others actually, um, which really thinks, thinks beyond that. And um, I know that before, um, at some point last year, they, they, the group had also started speaking to universities and looking into other abandoned spaces across Beirut to see if this model can be replicated elsewhere. Um, there's other fantastic examples that have come out of COVID. One of them in Bethlehem is called the Radio Al-Hara, which was started by, again, a group of five friends during lockdown to try and con continue the sense of connection and community at a point where everyone was rooted in their own location. So, you know, for the last six, seven months, they've, uh, they've grown and they've hosted the most incredible music sets from people, DJs, musicians, and artists all over the world. And that's the, the sets have also included conversations with poets, eco economists, politicians, writers, and even folk tales with, you know, one that comes to mind as a Palestinian artist called Jumana Aboud. This is another really interesting and innovative approach that's come out working with very little, but creating an incredible sense of community and impact. And in your opinion, what do you think are the key characteristics that come to the fore when it comes to defining or describing the cultural sector of the region? Certainly resilience is kind of a key word and, and perhaps also a sensitive word. I know in the case of Beirut, you know, this, this case of this constant resilience of the people has also become a, a source of pain, of course given the, the you know, recent incidents. But I would definitely say you know, ingenuity, creativity, resilience, and the ability to constantly adapt. Um, I think that we've seen that you know, consistently across the region. Uh, another space I, I would mention, which no longer exists, but you know, it was never intended to exist in perpetuity, is called Nile Sunset Annex, um, that was operating out of Cairo. And there, the group of individuals who set it up, who are all artists, um, actually set it up, understanding that there was a, a lack of having proper technical services for the installation of exhibitions in the city. And so actually offering their services as technicians would then end up generating money to actually propel the space itself. So I think that there's constantly been this idea of adapting and really um, understanding, being responsive to what the cities need. There, what I would say is that, you know, there are a lot of projects that have been set up tackling issues around the environment, which have become increasingly important over the last six months. 
or not to say that they weren't important before, but I think globally people recognize why we're in the moment that we're in. And it largely is to do with the abuse that we've been um, sort of, you know, we've exposed our planet to. So there've been, you know, many artists and designers who've really tackled, you know, created projects, even long-term projects like the Palestine Heirloom Seed Library that tackle issues around heritage, ancestry, but also our relationship with the natural environment. Likewise, you know, many other cultural pro programs that have been tackling social justice, you know, the crisis around housing um, and, you know, support also for, you know, uh, disadvantaged members of society and the importance of having equity in, in, in our community. So, for example, in the case of Lebanon and in particular Beirut, the region has been threatened in the last eight months by COVID and by also the explosion in the harbor of Beirut. What do you think actually resilience means when it comes to reinventing or revamping their cultural sector? Do they actually need international support? I think on the notion of resilience, uh, like I said, it's it's somewhat of a painful word, but I but sometimes there's tended to be an understanding or an idea that the region is always looking first to the West to set precedent. And I think uh, I've always found it to be the opposite, really, that, you know, there's a real need for us to kind of look to where we came from and look to examples uh, like Dar al Fen, but many others um, as a source of inspiration. I think for the most part, we have enough um, material in front of us and precedent that has been incredibly avant-garde, far more advanced and far more cutting edge. And I think that there's a lot that can be learned from that if we just take pay more attention and look around at all of these, you know, small and larger examples that have come before us and that are in right in front of us at the moment about adaptation, responsiveness, ingenuity, creativity and innovation. So now I really want to hear your thoughts on what do you think is the future of the region in light of the current socio-geopolitical crisis that it's going on, not only in the region, but in the whole world? I think that's a question that globally many people are asking themselves. Um, what I have seen, um, not, not just in the Arab world, but certainly, you know, in, in the applications, the residency applications that I read on a day-to-day -day basis and in conversations with colleagues and friends, is that I think that the idea of collaboration has now become for many reasons, um, a survival mechanism. People are much more open to working with one another and people are, are you know, thinking around other forms of exchange, other forms of, you know, reciprocity, whether it be an exchange of services uh, that's less transactional. And I think for the most part, this is, this is going to be a moment where the art world really needs to, you know, redefine itself and also think about its relationship with um, wider society. I've, you know, there, there's many, much more concern now for questions around mysticism, um, you know, alternative ways of operating, uh, our relationship with nature and ecology, the politics of care. Um, of course, you know, science and technology, where is that taking us? And indigenous, you know, ways of operating, what's come before us, treating it with far more, um, uh, um, with, with, with much more interest. So I would, I, I, without sort of knowing, I think this is the direction we're going into where people are, of course, 
you know, really thinking about, you know, where do you go from here and uh, how do you create more resilience in how you operate and, and create a program that is um, directly related to people's experiences and, and which also reflects in response to pressing issues globally. Some of these, I think, has been a wonderful learning template to better understand the region. And because we're getting to the end of today's podcast, I think it's always a good reminder to think of why is culture important, particularly in moments like now where the crisis of the coronavirus has hijacked so many organizations. Um, we learned that different museums and cultural venues are reducing their staff members. Other venues directly are just closing and shutting down. Why should we remember always to put culture first? I mean, I think I think culture has always been a reflection of our society and has always been, in a way, a sort of a life support to, to, to create pockets of joy and reflection on the moment that we're in. I think beyond the government, I think it's also up to arts organizations themselves to to really take care of their employees at the moment. Um, as we've discussed before, there are so many organizations here in the UK who are cutting jobs left, right and center. And I think that there, there's a problem there because I think they've given priority really to expansion projects of real estate and expanding their own, you know, their own basis more than they have you know, human capacity. Um, and I think there really needs to be a change there, that there needs to be far more priority and care taken of taking care of their staff rather than actually thinking about expansion projects and capital campaigns. Indeed, let's hope that that's going to be the future and that after this crisis, the sector can come and resurface with a new impetus. And just before we finish today's episode, I'm, I'm very curious of learning and knowing what are you currently working on at Delfina, because I know their programming is excellent and you have just very recently been able to welcome new artists in residence. Um, we've just reopened after a six-month hiatus, um, which is very exciting. So we have six international residents and three UK-based ones. Um, but funnily enough, I'm also thinking not just about taking care of them and making their, you know, helping um, develop their thinking while they're in residence. But I'm thinking about the upcoming themes next year, uh, which is collecting as practice. Um, the theme is normally centered around the, the psychology around collecting uh, and, uh, and philanthropy. But really, the subsection of next year is going to be tackling issues around restitution um, decolonization and what does it really mean to create collections in the UK that are representative um, of the diverse communities that the UK is composed of. So um, I'm trying to pull together a program which really works with UK and international organizations to work hand in hand with the residents that we select on really rethinking their collections, rethinking their strategies towards diversity and even thinking in a much more nuanced way about their role as not owners of these collections, but actually caretakers of these collections. Well, Salma, I'm very glad that you and the Delfina Foundation are able to be back on track. And I really want to wish you the very best for this new season and hope that you're able to achieve and accomplish all your objectives and that the corona does not stop you from it. Um, Thank you so much 
for being able to walk us today through the nuances and the difficult paths that are laid out in front of us when it comes to the Levant and the region. I think particularly given the current circumstances and what we have seen on the news and TV and so on, it's important to understand it and at least to raise awareness of it. I hope that you and I are able to meet very soon and that you can come to Asia House at some point. It would be lovely to host you. Thank you very much. I hope so too, Juan. It's been such a pleasure. I hope we get to see one another very soon. But thank you so much for hosting me today. And thank you so much also to you, our dear listener, that every season and every week stays with us. Just to remind you that next week we'll have another episode and we hope to accompany you until the end of the year with the second season of Arts in Isolation. Until next week, I hope I am able to get rid of this cold and that you all stay safe, stay well and take care. You were listening to the Arts in Isolation podcast brought to you by Asia House. For more information, please visit our website, asiahousearts.org.